Thanks, Ben. They're a group of scientists who wanted to do something really notable. Something that would be so amazing, it would win the Nobel Prize. So they put their heads together, and they thought about it, and they thought about it, and they thought, what's never been done? What's something that would really get people's attention? How can we use all the knowledge that we have in uh, biology and physics and chemistry and, and combine that in such a way uh, that, that something brand new would be created, something nobody else has ever thought of. And then they came up with this idea. Let's create a fish that can live out of water. So they started working on it. They took a red herring, and they breeded and cross-breeded, and they did experiments, and, and they, they came up with all these sorts of things, which only those of us who are you know, very intimate with scientific stuff uh, understand And finally, after a lot of trial and error, they came up with a fish that could live out of water. They were high-fiving each other. They were so pleased with that. They thought, this is is a great thing. But once they had accomplished that, uh, you know, they... uh, they felt like, well, this is pretty good. He said, what a, what a remarkable thing. He was a little asthmatic. I mean, he, was, you know, he coughed some and you know, it, it didn't look completely comfortable, but they were held as geniuses. They thought, nobody's ever done this. Uh, they were shoe-ins for the Nobel. Uh, but they decided, this is pretty good, but it's not enough. Let's step it up. Let's take this fish that we've created who can live you know, fairly comfortably outside side of water, and let's make this fish hate water. Just, be, just recoil at the, the sight of water. Let, let's create a fish that has nothing to do with it, and just, you know, that would be even, even more amazing. So they go back to the laboratory and begin to work on this thing that would be instinctive, you know, this is reflex that would call a fish to go, ah, water, ah, you know, just not like water. And then they do that. Uh, they work on it, they, they crossbreed, they work with chromosomes and hormones, and they do all sorts of experiments, and they finally come up with a fish that hates water, just hates water. They get rich. I don't know who pays for that, but there are people who will pay you money to come up with stuff like that. The idea is so that they, they get rich, they become famous, they're on the cover of all the magazines, uh, and the cool thing about it is that what they begin to do is that the lead scientist does these, uh, these presentations where he shows people. And typically what he liked to do is he would go down to a lake or to a river and he would hold the fish up over the body of water. And the fish would look down and see the water, you know, and make little fish, ah, sounds like fish do. And... Um, and, and the, the fish would, no, no, and he would do these presentations, and people would be amazed. And just to, at his demonstration, this is how a fish reacts at the slightest hint of humidity. And everybody was so overwhelmed. But one day, the scientist was going through his deal, you know, and he took the fish, and he held it out over the water, and the fish was having such a reaction, keep me away from the water, this is what the fish was thinking, Fish are very smart, and you know, they're thinking, uh, uh, you know, and he was flopping around so much, he actually flipped out of the scientist's hand. 
and down into the lake he went. Now the fish thinks, I'm a goner. That's it. Uh, it just, when he hits the surface of that water, and just begins to sink. Takes a big breath before he goes down, you know, and just settles uh, on the bottom, waiting for death to come. Finally, when he can't stand it any longer, just opens up his gills and goes, <gasps> and his lungs fill up with lake water. Huh. This is, it's not so bad. Actually, I kind of like it. That's what the fish is thinking. Yeah, and, and, he just, and he begins to just kind of suck in this water, and he, get, and he thinks, wow, this feels pretty good. This feels pretty good. And, and the fish looks up, and the, the scientist doesn't know what. So he's reaching in. The fish can look out, and he sees the scientist's hand reaching in, and he makes this decision in that moment. In a split-second time, he decides, I'm not going back. And so with a flick of his tail, I'm waiting all morning to say that. With a flick of his tail, he swims away for good. Because the fish had found its element. He knew at some level, I've come home. This what I was meant to be. This is where I was meant to live my life. We are in a culture that has been conducting a massive experiment for a long, long time. An experiment attempting to create people who can live comfortably outside the presence of God. And the experiment has even gone further. Since there's such great success in creating people who can uh, live life without any sense of dependency on God, we now see that people actually recoil at the idea of God. I mean, I meet people all the time, probably you do too, who, who actually think, you know what, I, I, I can breathe without God. I don't want God. In fact, they're very proud of the fact that they can live without Him. And they create foundations and organizations to try to get you to think there's not even a God out there. They're very adamant about that, just full of disdain and arrogance whenever they even think about the presence of God. And sometimes I ask questions like, because maybe you're one of those folks, and maybe you're here, and that's okay. But do you ever fear things that just seem bigger than you? Do you ever wonder where you're going, and how you're going to get there, and who to turn to when you really need help, and your friends just don't seem to be able to, to cut it? Do you ever get this feeling inside like you just want to thank somebody. <laughs> you just want to tell somebody how much you appreciate uh, something and but nobody around you seems adequate to receive that. It just seems that's not enough. Have you ever felt just this a sense of joy and wonder, where does that come from? Why, why do I feel this way? How, 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 did, I, how did I get that? 
Or do you ever, like, like I did, just look around at the world? You, just, you kind of just step back and think, there's something desperately wrong here. But you don't know why you feel that way or what to do about it. Because your theology or, or your lack of theology just feels so inadequate. And just, uh, there's so much that's gone wrong. Maybe the thing you fear the most is actually exactly what you were made for. Through the course of this series, over the last couple of weeks, we've thought about what would life be like if we just said, yes, God. Yes, That's all. Not a lot of complicated formulas, not a lot of charts or diagrams or detailed instructions. Just if if every time God speaks to our hearts, every time he prompts us, you know, what in whatever way, we just go, yes. Little ways, big things. We say, yes, Lord. I'm good. I'm I'm up with, I'm on. I'm there. I'm with you. And so the first week we talked about just what would that look like and feel like, and we began to get responses and I, it's, you know, one of the fun things about what I do is that I get to hear some of those testimonies. Some of you sent me emails going, you're not going to believe what God's doing in my life. And this is starting to get kind of fun. Some of you said it feels awfully dangerous. Because the minute I began to say yes, chaos broke out. And the, well, how come the minute I said yes, it seemed like the wheels came off. And I said, that's very, expect that. And we talked about the fact that we, we don't, we're not going to be surprised. And last week, we, we, we looked at the idea of, well, if, God, if I'm going to say yes to God, how do I know what he's saying to begin with? And that's a good question, right? Well, if I'm going to say yes to him, I don't understand exactly how he's communicating. So we talked about how to listen to God and how to hear his voice. Today, I kind of want to wrap this up and, and nail down this series because after we've you know, learned to say yes to God and we get pretty good at it, there's this thing that we go through, it's, it's kind of a transition of getting used to the water. You know, we're, we're back in the water, we're in our element. But it feels so different. And it's a little strange, and it's, and it's not what we're used to, and it's not where we used to live. It's something different. True freedom, and the liberty that your heart longs for at some level, where you think, is this it? I remember writing... And my friend James, 66 Chevelle, down a street called Fraser Boulevard. And, and I said, James, is this it? We get up, you go to work, you come home, you go out to the clubs or you watch television. Or you, you, know, you hang out with your friends. You go to bed and you get up and you, I said, is this all there is? I just kind of thought there would be more. I thought there would be a point to it all. There would be purpose. That began, for me, a series of, of a, a lot of questions that I had. And then as I stepped into this new element of Jesus and began to live in Christ, began to understand that there was more. And it was something different. Now, at first, it's a little uncomfortable. And some of you are figuring that out, right? Because you've, you've taken that step. And you say, well, I'm kind of there. Went swimming uh, Friday night. And I thought, well, this may be the last time. You know, it's kind of getting that season, and it's almost over. The pool where we go closes tomorrow, I think. So it's kind of our last shot. And 
I've got a seven-year-old boy who has no nerve endings anywhere on his body. You know, remember when you were seven, you just jump in and you lie to your parents and people around you. It feels great. Come in. You learn not to. So you step in and go, oh, oh, oh. So I did the old guy thing where I step into my ankles and I go, okay, hang on. Let me, wait, 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 wait. Don't splash, don't splash, don't stop, stop, stop. You know, how you, how you, and I get on my knees and I'm just, and I'm just keep doing that. The crucial, I don't know how this works for women, but for men, the crucial place is right here, right? You get up there and you start going up on your toes. You don't know why. You're just like, no, 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 let me do it, let me do it. Don't, 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 don't push, don't push. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, and then you, you finally, and you just go. <laughs> Feels good, doesn't it? No, it doesn't feel good. But after a while, you know, and how many times have you been swimming and somebody says, it feels pretty good once you get used to it. That's kind of a dumb illustration, but it's a little like that, living in Jesus. When, when, I, when I first began to live in Christ, I thought, this is weird. And I would ask my Christian friends, I was a new believer, and they were all so excited. I was, I was a project, you know. I was the freak, and, and it was just, anyway. Uh, I didn't know a lot about how to, and I was so I'd ask, well, what do we do about, how does this work? And what, I, I'll never forget a friend of mine sitting down with me and said, so how's your quiet time? It's my quiet time. It's pretty quiet. It's timely. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, quiet time. Where you spend time alone with the Lord. And I go, I do that. I didn't know, I didn't know what you... Yeah, I've been doing that. Well, then what's your spiritual gift? My spiritual gift? I run pretty fast. I can draw. <laughs> I said, no, no. And it was just all these things. I didn't know what was going on. But as I began to push forward and to swim further and further away from the shore, I began to understand more and more what it means to be in Jesus. Now today, I want to illustrate that with a, with a big story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. I want to look at the life of somebody who learned how to say, yes, God, and turned that into a lifestyle and just kept swimming deeper and deeper and further out. Somebody who fell into the water and she at first thought, this is going to kill me. <laughs> I can't do, this is not my element, but found out, to her surprise, this is exactly what I was made for. This is the story of Esther. An amazing woman at a unique time and place in history. It was unique to her and to the people around her because the things that happened in her story, I, I think, communicate to all of us. It will help you understand how we transform, how we go through this, this transition from people who just live for ourselves and we just go day to day doing the best we can to, you know, applying all of our own rules and you know, to people who just go, yes, God, yes, Lord, and live in Christ. This story takes place in the 5th century B.C. in Persia. At that time, there was a king of the day, very um, 
kind of an, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, eccentric kind of a, a guy named uh, Xerxes. Xerxes was capricious. He, you never knew what he was going to do. He was like a rock star, just, you know, who's done way too many chemicals. He, he, you know, one day he likes you. and He goes, dude, you know what? Half the kingdom is yours. <laughs> yeah, and you go, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll take that. And the next day he's like, you know what? You annoy me. Somebody come kill this guy. Wait, 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 wait. You know, he was just a man of extremes. And everybody's a little anxious around him. You got people like that? You got a roommate like that? <laughs> you go, You're talking about my husband. Yeah, <laughs> I never know. Well, this king um, could be in a bad mood and have you killed. He could be in a good mood. But one of the things that was kind of weird about him is that he was a little insecure. He couldn't make decisions on his own. Every time it came for him to decide, you know, uh, I, what, do you, what do you think I ought to do? What do, you, what do you guys think? Well, we think you ought to do this. Okay, well, that's what I, I was thinking that too. But, you know, I, I wasn't sure. But, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to do what you guys think I ought to do because that's what I was, I was, I was already going to do that. You know, he was just that kind of a leader. He's a portrait of what happens when you fuse together a, a very weak care, character with absolute power. Let me say something. Don't get me off subject, okay? I know we're going to be voting in the days to come. Weak character, absolute power, is no better fit today than it was three or 4,000 years ago. So think through who has the values and the heart, the character, because you know what? When it comes to policies and well, how should we do this, there's always going to be 10 different ways to do it. I mean, that's true nationally, internationally. It's true in a church level. We use, you know, sometimes we step back and look at something and go, you know what? There's six ways that would be successful. There's six different, this will work, this will work, this will work. What's the best way? What's the right way? What's the way that would be pleasing to the Lord? What's the morally upright thing to do? Xerxes wasn't really worried about that so much. And it was no prettier then in their kingdom than it would be today in, in ours when, if you were to, to blend those. And we see world leaders and probably faces and names pop up in your mind in countries all around the world where you think, wow, we just wish that guy weren't there. You know, he's hurting so, so many people. This guy is just like a big baby in his, in his maturity. Uh, and yet, he's the most powerful man in the East. I, I think, you know, when I step back and look at him and kind of read about him, probably the most powerful man on the planet. I can't imagine what that must be like. I mean, it was a, it was a rush to Xerxes. He was very generous. If I, had, if I come up with something nice to say about the guy, he was generous. He could give away things, you know, pretty easily, but he's also amazingly arrogant. He holds this 180-day festival for himself. You know, he, he throws this huge, it's like Bonnaroo and Woodstock and inauguration. I mean, it's like everything all thrown together. He's got this huge 180 days festival going on to, to show himself off. You know, all the 
the grandeur, the, the, the splendor, the beauty of his stuff. And, you know, everybody just thinks, oh, my goodness, you are so amazing. Yeah, I kind of am. You know, I guess that's me. And at the peak of the 180 days, within this festival, he has a seven-day feast. You think you know how to party. Seven days, all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> Persian food. Yeah. I mean, it was just this big thing. Well, the feast is going on, everybody's partying, you know, and everybody's having a good time. And it goes on and on. The king gets seriously drunk. And he decides, I need something to really, I need a showstopper. I need something that everybody's going to go home and go, 180 days, seven days. And then at the end, can you believe what Xerxes did? Oh, and he's, you know... So he comes up with this idea. This is going to sound absolutely ridiculous. It's the worst idea I ever had. Stupidest thing he could have done. But he decides, I'm going to ask my queen, Vashti, to come out in front of everybody, which according to their custom, according to the culture of the day, she didn't make an appearance. She just didn't do that. He said, I'm going to have her come out wearing a crown. And most scholars think that what he meant was and nothing but a crown. We'll stop there. So he sends for her. I want you to come out. You ready? And he lines everybody up. And he's just, wait, let's see this. This is going to be so amazing. This is going to be, I'm, uh, you the man. I am the man. You know, and he's ready for this moment. Except the queen, she's supposed to come out. She refuses. No. What are you thinking? I am the queen. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. You are drunk. You are boorish. That's humiliating. It's just, it's, I'm not going to do that. Xerxes is embarrassed. Everybody's looking at him, right? And everybody's thinking, loser, you know, you can't, you know. And she, it's not going to happen for him. So what does he do? He does what he always does. He turns to his advisors. What do you guys think I ought to do? The queen would tell her to come. Well, she won't come. Well, make her. I don't, what do I, how do I, you know, and they have this conversation. And uh, one of the guys comes up with an idea. Well, you know what? If she's not going to do what you say, and she's not going to come out and let you parade her in front of everybody, you ought to get rid of her. Just divorce her. Kick her out. So he goes along with it, and he gets rid of Vashti. Now, a couple of years go by, and Xerxes starts missing her. You know, it was a bad decision. Uh, he shouldn't have done it. He goes back through some old photos and videos, and he's looking at it, thinking, man, she was so sweet, so hot, so, you know, I just, ah, oh, I miss the queen. And, it, and at the same time, he's going through this national crisis. Uh, some of his ships, you know, he's lost this enormous fleet, and all these things are happening. It's a big blow. And his advisors around him, they know how easily influenced he is. So they tell him, you know what you need? Zerk, you need a girlfriend. Man, you're so cranky, and you're, you're just you're so sad all the time. You need a girlfriend. And here's what we're going to do. We've got an idea. Let's get you, write down what is the perfect woman. Have you ever done this? You did it yesterday? Wait, okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't look at me. You've done it. So what's your perfect man? Okay, he's about nine feet tall. He's got a gazillion dollars. He looks just like Dan Riley. 
That's what she said, right? Maybe. Oh, that's what Xerxes did. He goes, okay, here's, here's what I want. They go, okay, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a contest. We're going to put on a beauty pageant. And we're going to invite every woman in the kingdom. All of them. Miss Persia. We're going to start off with this huge, and we're going to get down to the one that you like best. Whoever you think is the most beautiful, your, you know, whatever it is that you want. So they, they have this. We're going we're gonna to pick the best of the best, uh, the cream of the crop. How would you like to be referred to? Are you the cream of the crop? Yes, I'm the cream of the crop. Um, and the rest of us, we're crop. <laughs> you know? um, and you're the cream of the crop. And you pick the one who's most beautiful. That will be your next wife. You, you, can, you can have her. So the pageant commences. And then after they have all the judging and Simon's there, and you know, everybody's come, and they all, and at the end of the day, Esther is chosen. Can you imagine being chosen the winter, the winner of everybody, the most beautiful woman alive? Well, he likes you know the idea from the beginning. He really likes what he sees with Esther. He's starting to. You know, Vashti is beginning to fade in his, his memory. Esther becomes the new queen. That's the story. Now, there's a subplot that's going on, that, that's running at the same time uh, during all of this. Esther is kind of an orphan. The Bible mentions her mom. Her dad's not in the picture. So she's being raised by her uncle Mordecai, who goes by the name of Mort. No, I made that up. Mordecai is a devout Jewish man. Esther, as it turns out, is Jewish. We don't know that until the story kind of unfolds later, later in, in what's going on. One of Xerxes' right-hand man is, it's like his press secretary <laughs> That's in that day. No, no modern, nothing. Just, but he's arrogant. He's just, uh, just full of himself. You know, he's uh, kind of the right-hand guy. So he's got this place of influence and this place of power. Uh, and, and he really has... Uh, the king's ear. He can say things. Um, so his name's Haman. Very powerful, very powerful rich guy. Haman always receives attention. You know, goes to the restaurant. Oh, Haman, you're here. Oh, we have your table ready. And, uh, we, you know, they just usher him in. He gets all the accolades on the street. Oh, Haman, Hamie, what's up? You know, and everybody's talking to him. Everybody likes him. So they appear to and pretend to. Uh, and when he walks down the streets one day, everybody bows. Everybody's like, oh, Haman's Haman. Just do the drill. He'll be buying him. One guy, one guy says, I bow before nobody but God. And Mordecai is that guy. And he just stands there. Well, Haman's going by and he notices. Who's that guy? I don't know. I don't know who that guy. Find out who that guy is. He's, he's furious. He said, how dare he? Who, does he know who I am? Yeah, I think he knows who you are. Well, Haman gets it in the idea, uh, gets this idea in his head to take revenge on Mordecai. And, and, he, and he comes up with this idea. He, he finds out Mordecai is a Jew, which makes him even madder. So he comes up with this. This is his plan. I'm not going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill all the Jewish people in the kingdom. How do you like that? For some reason, that's been a solution several times during history. 
Isn't that odd that God's chosen people, that for some reason, oh, I think the, I think the answer is kill all the Jews. Oh, yeah, that, that, that will solve the problem. So he meets with Xerxes, he tells him about his plan, and he convinces the king, Jews are really not good for us here. They're the bad apples. They're messing everything up. You, we just need to get rid of them. And he creates a document uh, that the king only has to sign, and it's a decree of death to all the Jews. Xerxes, being the guy that he is, he signs it. When that happens, nobody can believe it. I mean, the whole countryside is bewildered. That he did what? We're gonna, you see, all their friends and their neighbors, the culture is real mixed, and it's just like, what? You're, you're Jew- That's right, you are Jewish. Are they going to kill my next-door neighbor? They're going uh, to kill me. You know, everybody began to think about that, and it's just a, a terrible situation. Well, Mordecai finds out about the decree right away, and he comes to the palace. He dresses himself in sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of humility. I mean, he's ready to beg to save his people. It's this classic Jewish way of expressing repentance and, and mourning. Esther doesn't want to be outed by her uncle, so she sends clothes to him. He will not change. He says, this is what I'm going to wear. This is it. Finally, uh, he has an audience with her, and this is the defining moment. This is where I've been leading up to. This is something happens in Esther's life right here, right now. She jumps in the water. Mordecai is begging for her to help. You're the queen. You've got influence. You can change things. You have, you know, Xerxes listens to you. Esther is so afraid. I mean, she's terrified, and initially she declines. I'm not up for this, and not a lot of my friends know about my Jewishness, so could we kind of keep that on the DL? You know, and she knows the king's temperament. You know, I may go in. He may be good with that. Yeah, you know what? Or, or he may kill me right on the spot. I just, I don't trust this guy. So she knows she could die if this doesn't play out right. And if she approaches him at the wrong time. And this is what the Bible says it happened at that moment. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews that can be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. If he kills me, then he kills me. But this is what I've decided to do. I'm going to say yes. So she does. Now, this is a key text. And if you've got a Bible and you're an underliner or a highlighter, this ought to be one of those passages that gets attention. 
You say, yes, God, and you set out on the adventure of your life, but don't think that God needs you. I mean, remember, you know, Mordecai said, you know, if you don't do this, somebody else will come along who will. It's not all about you. Oh, if I don't do it, nobody will do it. Some of you assume that responsibility. For years, there were people in my family, and I'd try to be a good witness to, and if I did something kind of wrong, I didn't, you know, have the right testimony, i think, oh, no, I just blew it, and now they're never going to receive Jesus, and they're going to go to hell, and it's going to be my fault. I can't assume that. You can't assume that. But we just say yes to God and we do the next right thing. You just say yes to God. And if you don't do it, God's going to find another way. But he'll leave you out of the plan. You won't have a story. Your name will just fade away. And then he asked Dan and Dan said, no, I've got some other stuff going on. And then so Dan exit and we bring in somebody else. And God says, this is who I'll work through could be your name well she says i'll do it there's just this clincher this statement how do you say no when when mordecai says he says this who knows who knows maybe you've come to this royal position you you've come into the kingdom for this very moment for such a time as this hey do you ever wonder why you're here? I mean, do you, do you ever think, why did God put me in the job where he put me? I could have done a hundred things. I could have worked for 50 different companies. I could have had different positions. But for some reason, I'm right here. Do you ever wonder why you're in your family? Why he put you in that neighborhood and this is your neighbor? Could have been so many other people. Could it be, I'm just going to throw this out there for you to think about, could it be that you are strategically placed in your life for such a time as this? You're at this university, you're at that high school, you're in your neighborhood, you've married this person, and it's all very purposeful. And within that context, all you've got to do next is just say, yes, God. You just got to fall into the water. There's this moment of reckoning in Esther's life, and she sends this reply back to her uncle, go gather everybody up, all the Jews. We're in this together. And, you know, here's this powerful decision that I've made. I don't care. If this kills me, then it does. But I'm not turning back. She's reached this point of willingness, this point of saying, yes, God. And I really mean it, and it's not just words and it's not just I'm pretending to say yes or yes as long as it's big picture you know you know how you love people you know how you could stand at the top of Nayland Stadium and look down and go God I just love all these people God says okay then go sit down on one of those metal benches with this much space next to the guy who's cursing real loud and had way too much to drink at tailgate And the big lady on the other side who keeps elbowing you and the kid behind you who keeps kicking you and the guy who stands up in front of you and yells stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. But he's an expert in all things football, all things NCAA. Now, do you still love people? You see, when you get up close, saying, yes, God is a little different than it is from a distance. It's not as romantic. It's a little more messy. A little more uncomfortable. Esther knows this. She says, this isn't pretty. I could die. This may kill me. But I say yes. 
And she says yes. And then what unfolds is kind of this, this series of intuitive moves on her part. You know, it's kind of like, it's like this is the way God works. Once you say yes initially, you say this big yes, then there are all these little things that begin to fall in place. And that's what I love about stories. I love about testimony. So he would say, okay, I said yes. And then I pull into the bank and you'll never guess who was there. And then they said, well, you need to go over here. And, and isn't that just like God? And I think he does this in a hundred ways. And it's such a beautiful thing when you, when you track back to that moment and you realize, wow, look how God worked, how he weaved and moved in my life. And that's how things work out. Esther is the single book in all of the books of the Bible where the name of God is never mentioned. But the hand of God is just all over it. You look at Esther's life and there's just these godly fingerprints everywhere. Well, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Haman is cooking up this plot. You know, he's got this, he's not done yet. Uh, and what he would like to do is to, you know, simultaneously, he wants to destroy the Jews. He wants to humiliate and get rid of Mordecai personally. So he has these huge gallows built. And he's, he's, he, I'm going to hang Mordecai where everybody can see it. Uh, but on the night, in the midst of while all this is unfolding, Xerxes can't sleep. There's no such thing as Ambien. Uh, there's no such thing. He just, you know, he can't rest. So uh, he decides to do the most boring thing he can think of. He pulls out one of his UT textbooks, and he just begins to read the next assignment. Falls asleep right away. <laughs> no, it's, but it's kind of like that. You know what he does? He gets out the chronicles. This is like the historical records. You ever watch the public station when they're having the town council meetings, the city meetings? And you think, I need to know about this. I want to watch this. And so you watch it for a few minutes until your eyes glaze over. We want to we wanna build our barn right here. And they said we can't because it's two feet over. What color is your barn? Red. What are you going to put in the barn? Hay and stuff. My uncle's old car don't run no more. What's wrong with it? I don't know. I think it's a carburetor. You know, and you just, you're thinking, ah! That's what this was. So Xerxes gets it out, and he's reading through the Chronicles. And then we bought four goats. And the four goats he traded for a wagon. You know, and he, he's reading. But in the midst of this boring chronology, he reads about this incident where there was a man who once averted a conspiracy plot to kill the king. And he kind of wakes up. He goes, what, what is this? He goes, Yeah. He goes, well, who's the name of the guy? You mean there's somebody out there who figured out they were going to kill me and he stopped it and saved my life? Yes, he did. Whoa. Well, that's kind of cool. So there was this assassin. and the, the, So the king calls Haman in for his counsel. Haman, I've got this situation. And, and let me just tell you the, the big picture and you tell me what you think. Haman, here, here's, the, here's what happened. He actually didn't tell him a lot of the details, but he said, what should the king do for someone that he really wants to honor. Now, Haman, who's got such a big ego, he's thinking, it's me. The king likes me. He wants to honor me. And this is so, he's saying, oh, there's somebody I want to honor. What do you think I should do? Well, I don't know that somebody may be 
you should. And so Haman, thinking that it's all about him, holds nothing back. He pretends, oh, I don't know, maybe, oh, here's some ideas. Give him the best horse in the kingdom. Give him all your things to wear. Let him wear king's clothes, uh, uh, robes and shoes and uh, the whole deal. Have a great big parade right down the middle of Kingston Pike. Gather everybody in Susa. Have trumpeters trump. Have guitar players play. Everybody, I mean, big band. Uh, in fact, let's use the UT Pride of Southland marching band to proceed. Let's just do it up big and have all the people bow with adoration when he comes by. I mean, whoever you want to honor, I was just thinking something like that might be appropriate. Whatever you think. So the king says, you know what? I like it. Let's do it. Do exactly that. So Xerxes tells, you know, I, I'm, it's affirmative. Let's go ahead with the idea. And then here's this great line. Here's this great, in, in chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible says, Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Can you imagine Haman's face? Do this for, yes, do it for Mordecai. No, but Mordecai, no. And he just, ah, oh, and he's trying to keep his game face on, but he hates Mordecai. I'm not going to go into all the details, but Haman ends up getting caught in his own trap. Uh, he's the one that's hung on the gallows that he's built for Mordecai. Esther's able to use this moment in history for the kingdom at such a time as this. Uh, you know, she persuades the king, even though he's kind of locked in this position. You ever heard the phrase, the laws of the Medes and Persians? The deal was, once a law was made, you couldn't change it. Not even the king, once he decreed it, could change. But you could figure out ways around it, kind of like we do, <laughs> you know, with, with stuff. Um, so he, he figures out this way to, to counteract the law that he had set up. And a new decree states the Jews can defend themselves. And it all turns out really beautifully well. Uh, and it initiates, in fact, they start doing this feast called Purim that they still do to this day to commemorate this event, it's lasted through all the decades and all the centuries to celebrate that God comes through. And it all happened when one woman said yes and just fell into the water. History was changed. One woman's decision. What happens in the life of Esther is a transformation. It's this profound shift in her, you know, worldview from, from seeing God as somebody who's out there and, yeah, and I'm religious and I go to temple, I go to synagogue, you know, and to where God becomes the center of her whole life and she's willing to die for this. And as we kind of wrap up, just let me tell you these, these things that happened in, in her life that's going to happen in your life when you say yes to God. The first shift is that she went from allegiance to the kingdoms of this earth to the allegiance of, of God's kingdom. You need, you need to be more loyal to God than you are to anybody, anything else around you. God blessed that shift in her life. You know, Jesus said, why are you living like the pagans and you're worried about everything? And God, you just seek his righteousness and God's going to add all these things to you.
When God knows you, he's got your heart. Don't worry about that stuff. Don't worry about those things. God's going to take care of that. There was another shift in her life that's made in her personal priorities. Initially, I I don't know what she was thinking, but she kind of liked being the beauty queen, you know, and then the queen queen. Uh, She, you know, God's doing amazing things with her. I mean, it's not a bad ambition. She hasn't been sinful in this or anything, but, you know, it's just not enough. So she reaches the point where she's willing to give all that up. She's going to, she'll die. That's a huge shift. I've known, I've had friends who say, you know, I love it here, but I think God's calling me to China. I think God wants me to go here. I think God wants me to do this. I think God wants me to, to move in my life from pursuing or keeping all my money. I just want to keep all my money. And God's prompting me to, to give. And something amazing begins to happen when our priorities are all about the kingdom now. Then there's this third shift in her, and it's, and it's all about her life purpose. You know, when she shows up at the king's court, she just wants to win the beauty pageant. I am Esther. Yeah, I'm from Susa, and I just, I love puppies and long walks on the beach, and uh, the earth is green still because a lot of things hadn't been invented that would hurt the earth. I think that's really good. Yeah, I mean, she, that's all she's about. But then it changes for her. You know, Jesus talked to his disciples. You remember the time they were, they were walking on the road and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus says, it's not about you being great anymore. In fact, the greatest among you should just be a servant. Esther goes through that shift. And then there's this one other thing that happens. When Esther shows up, Power and wealth and privilege, they're all hers. I mean, they're just, they're there for her pleasure. They're, they're, she's the queen. She can have and do whatever she wants. But when God gets done with her, when God's finished, her power and her wealth, her privilege, all of those perks that she had, now she uses just to serve the people, just to advance God's kingdom. And thousands of years later, we're talking about her. You know, in John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And it was this very beautiful moment because John frames it this way. He says, Jesus wanting to show the full extent of his love. And in there, isn't there a part of you that thinks, mm, that story's wrong. He shouldn't do that. It shouldn't be Jesus washing their feet. He's Messiah. He, they should be washing his. But John says, when Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and that He was going to the Father and knowing all the power was under him, took off his outer robe and washed the disciples' feet. That's our example. He's our role model. And God has given you a limited amount of power and influence and privilege or wealth. How are you using that? What are you doing with that? Does it work just to keep it all for yourself and to continue to absorb and to consume all of that? The next time you're at the grocery store... Look over to your left and just check out the front page of all those tabloids and you tell me, does that seem to be working out for people who have it all? Doesn't it seem like the most troubled, anxious, sad, hurt, weird people are the people who have all the resources in the world and can buy and go and do whatever they want? And yet they seem to be sometimes some of the most unfulfilled, insecure people that we've ever seen and do some of the wackiest, craziest stuff to try to find answers. 
I was going to show you a quote, but I'm going to bail on that because our time is gone. But it just was talking about the contrast in, in our century, in, in our lifetime, of Princess Diana and Mother Teresa. If I'm not mistaken, they died within a day of one another. And the whole world just adored Diana. I mean, she was just so beautiful and so winsome. And there was just this pain in us when we, when we got up that Sunday morning and we, we read the news or we heard that she had been killed in that car track crash, you know. And then Mother Teresa just quietly slips off the planet. This little Albanian nun who moved to the dirty streets of Calcutta in India and just gave her whole life away. She changed the world forever in permanent, eternal ways. You know, there's nothing that can make us into a Princess Diana or a prince. I mean, you can wish it, you can pretend it, you can dress up like it, you can think, I'm, I'm now the Queen of Knoxville, I need everybody to pay attention. <laughs> I'm still going to cut you off in traffic of the game, you know. I'm, <laughs> no. You're not going to be that, but everybody can be Mother Teresa. Everybody can serve. Everybody can pour their lives into other people and make a difference. I can do that. You can do that. We just say yes. We just say yes. Esther was, she started off like the princess die of her day and decided, I'm going to say yeah. I'm going to fall into the water. I'm going to get back into my element. And at the end of the day, she becomes the Mother Teresa of her day. And we celebrate that. When God becomes your highest priority and you say yes to him, he's going to take you on the ride of your life. And you're going to like it so much better than if you set yourself up as king or queen. When Jesus is the king, and you're ready to say yes. Would you stand with me? Let's just pray about this together. Esther had to make some shifts in her life. She had to take some steps forward that um, really changed everything. Uh, Her world, the world around her, began with yes. Began with getting back in the element. That's how we do it too. We just say yes. You may be up to your ankles, you may be up to your knees, you may be up to your waist, or maybe even up to your chin but you haven't completely submerged yourself in him. This is a moment that we stop giving an opportunity to say, yes, I want in all the way. Here I come. And just dive into Jesus. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the lessons that you've taught us through this beautiful woman, how courageous she was. Just a strong portrait of what happens when a life is given to you. And we just say, yes. Some of us have said yes to a lot of things, but we still say no. There's still some areas that we hold back. Would you give us the courage today to abandon ourselves and to fall in and watch what happens after that? Thank you, Jesus. If you need help with a decision or an affirmation or just somebody to pray with, we've got folks down here who would love to be a part of that with you.
Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and Take my voice and let me sing Always only for my King Take my lips and let them be Filled with messages from Thee Take my silver and my gold not a might would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power that you choose. Here am I, all of me. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Take myself and I
Amen. Just two quick announcements before you leave. One, if you uh, field one of these out, and please, we really hope you'll do this, students and adults, uh, families. Uh, there will be somebody at each door to collect these and at the bottom of the steps. Really get involved. This is going to be a great impact uh, ministry. Also, uh, I've been asked to share there is, uh, because it's Booms Day tonight, uh, we as a church are going to meet uh, uh, anybody would like to at the Torchbearer on campus, but also we know a lot of uh, community groups uh, may want to meet at a separate time or whatever, but there will be no child care or choirs tonight let you know about that. Have a great afternoon and happy Labor Day.